0: Blob Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zufansky. Good evening. A successful entertainment executive making $2 million a year, his former beauty queen wife, their two sons on the fast track to success. But it was all a facade. The killing of Jose and Kitty Menendez on a quiet Sunday evening in Beverly Hills didn't make the cover of People magazine until the arrest of their sons seven months later, and the case developed an intense cult following. When the first Menendez trial began in July 1993, the public was convinced that Lyle and Eric were a pair of greedy rich kids who had killed loving, devoted parents. But the real story remained buried underneath years of dark secrets, until now. Journalist Robert Rand, who originally reported on the case for the Miami Herald and Playboy, has followed the Menendez murders from the beginning and has continued investigating and interviewing key sources for 28 years. Rand is the only reporter who covered the original investigation as well as both trials. With unparalleled access to the Menendez family and their history, including interviews with both brothers before and after their arrest, Rand has uncovered extraordinary details that certainly would have changed the fate of the brothers first degree murder conviction and sentencing to life without parole. Rand shares these intimate never before revealed findings, including a deeply disturbing history of child abuse and sexual molestation in the Menendez family going back generations and the shocking admission O.J. Simpson made to one of the Menendez brothers when they were inmates at the L.A. County Men's Central Jail. The book that we're featuring this evening is The Menendez Murders, the shocking untold story of the Menendez family and the killings that stunned the nation, with my special guest journalist and author, Robert Rand. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Robert Rand.
1: Hello, Dan. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Thank you very much. This is uh, an incredible, incredible book. And finally, we get to talk about this incredible case, one of the most shocking cases in true crime history. Let's
1: and it's, for it's our a audience. A very compl- I-, I was just going to say it's a very complex story with many different levels. And uh, it, it took me 30 years to really compile this entire story.
0: Yes, incredible. Tell us where you were working professionally at the time this this occurred, August 20th, 1989.
1: In uh, August of 1989, I was a freelance journalist uh, writing uh, 6,000-word feature stories for the Sunday Magazine of the Miami Herald. And a few weeks uh, before the uh, night of the Menendez murders, I was in Las Vegas at a uh, trade show for the home video business called the video software dealers uh, convention and uh, I was researching just a general story about the uh, home video business which was an enormous business in the 1980s and um, the morning after uh, uh, Jose and Kitty died I received a phone call in uh, the newsroom at the Miami Herald from a friend of mine Steve Apple who was the editor of a trade magazine, uh, for the video business. And he told me, uh, that, uh, a high profile home video executive Jose Menendez and his wife had been blown away, uh, the previous evening in, in Beverly Hills. And, uh, I knew that, uh, I, I quickly found out that, uh, Jose Menendez was Cuban American. And so that made it a potential interest to people in Miami. And the initial media coverage of the Menendez murders was really, uh, only on the national media radar for two or three days, uh, after the murders. Right. And, uh, then it just, uh, there was some local LA coverage because there were seven months between the night of the murders and, uh, March 8th, 1990 when Lyle Menendez was arrested in Beverly Hills.
0: Right. Now, what did you do to start these articles? I mean, obviously, these articles progressed to where we are today, as you said, almost 30 years later. Tell us how you started. What was the beginning of those articles and your research therein?
1: Sure. Well, after I got this phone call uh, from my friend tipping me off uh, you know, that Jose Menendez, a high-profile video, home video executive, had been killed, uh, I... Uh, did a little research and found out that he had a sister uh, who lived in West Palm Beach uh, about an hour and a half north of Miami. And uh, this is 1989, uh, you know, before the internet, no cell phones. I got out the West Palm Beach phone book and I looked up uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the sister of Jose Menendez and uh, called her up. And my call was 5% to make a condolence call and 95% to possibly hit on her for a story. And after I introduced myself, uh, Marta Cano, uh, the the aunt of uh, Eric and Lyle Menendez, immediately invited me to come up to West Palm Beach and uh, meet her. And we spent four hours uh, uh, that afternoon uh, discussing the Menendez family history, which was a fascinating story. Uh, The family originally was from Spain. They had been uh, very poor, became wealthy, lost everything, immigrated to Cuba. Uh, had no money, uh, became successful, wealthy all over again. And then Castro came into power, and they had to uh, leave Cuba. And the family restarted for a third time in the States. Uh, Jose Menendez arrived in the U.S. at the age of 16. He had nothing. He had been leading a country club lifestyle, upper middle class, uh, very comfortable lifestyle in Cuba. And suddenly he was living with distant relatives in an attic in northeast Pennsylvania, And uh, once again in the States, the family became successful all over again. So I went back to my uh, editor at the uh, Tropic Magazine, Sunday Magazine of the Herald, and said, look, we don't know much about this murder investigation, and, and the police were being very tight-lipped. I said, but uh, I said, this family has a very interesting story, and so uh, I think we should do a biography of Jose Menendez rags-to-riches Cuban-American story ends in a terrible tragedy. And uh, my editor liked that idea, and uh, I began my initial reporting on the case.
0: How athletic was Jose and uh, how much of a factor was that in this story?
1: Well, Jose Menendez was a star athlete uh, who was actually a uh, swimmer uh, uh, in uh, high school in Pennsylvania. And um, he was also a tennis player. And so um, he was, uh, you know, very athletic himself. And uh, when his sons were born, he wanted his sons to become uh, star athletes. And so he spent a lot of time, Uh, With them, uh, you know, initially he was interested in them uh, becoming uh, competitive swimmers. And then uh, he switched his uh, focus and the focus of the brothers to tennis. And both brothers became nationally ranked uh, tennis players. Jose Menendez used to wake them up at four in the morning and have them hit balls for three hours before they would go to school when they were little kids.
0: Tell us about uh, Mary Louise. They called her Kitty and how they met and their relationship.
1: Well, Kitty Menendez, uh, was born in a suburb of Chicago and she went to college at Southern Illinois university. And, uh, Jose and Kitty Menendez shared several classes. Uh, one of their favorite classes was uh, a debate, a debate class where they used to debate each other and they began a romantic uh, relationship. And, um, they wanted to get married, but uh, Jose was under 18. And in Illinois, you had to be 18 to get married, uh, and or or you had to have the uh, permission uh, of your parents. And so Jose and Kitty Menendez eloped and went to Indiana and didn't tell their uh, family until after they were married. The, his father was uh, somewhat upset. Uh, his father, whose nickname was Pepin, uh, his real name was also Jose, uh, but Jose Menendez's father told him, "You're too young to get married, and, and uh, you know you shouldn't do this." But Jose had made up his mind; decided he wanted to do it, and uh, the young couple uh, did get married. And uh, then the family was 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 happy after after they kept the secret for a few months. But the family was happy after everything
0: came out. Now, tell us how they eventually get to again, where he's this executive at, uh, Corico pictures, uh, producer of the Rambo and Terminator movies. Tell us how they get finally to where they are, um, in Beverly Hills. What's the route.
1: It's an interesting story, uh, because, uh, after Jose and Kitty Menendez were married, they moved to, uh, New York city where Jose was, uh, continuing school at, uh, Queens college. And, uh, Jose and Kitty were broke. They uh really were just barely getting by. Kitty was doing some work as a substitute teacher. Jose was actually when he was in college he was selling encyclopedias door to door. Uh there was one anecdote I heard from the family in, in which he sold an encyclopedia to a woman an elderly woman who uh after the day the evening after he sold it to her he felt guilty he didn't think she could really afford it. And he went back the next day and uh, you know, took the encyclopedia back and uh, gave the, refunded the woman her money. He was also working wow. as a uh, dishwasher at the, uh, tw- at the uh, 21 Club in New York. Mm-hmm. And so they were really struggling financially. Uh, Jose graduated from Queens College uh, and was able to land a job with Cooper's, what was then Cooper's Library, and, uh, one of the big eight uh, accounting firms. And from there, he uh, uh, went through uh, a couple other uh, jobs as an executive with different companies. And then one of the biggest jobs in his career was uh, when he became head of U.S. operations for Hertz Rent-A-Car. And after a couple years of success at Hertz, uh, RCA, the corporate owner, uh, moved Jose to uh, one of the top executives with RCA Records. And so... Jose was hoping to become uh, the, uh, the uh, top executive, the uh, CEO of RCA Records. And when that didn't happen, uh, he uh, pulled the cord on a golden parachute, uh, walked away with a million dollars, and uh, began looking for some type of new work in the entertainment business. And uh, one of the offers that uh, came his way was to run the home video division of Caracol Pictures, Uh, Curical Pictures was one of the hottest independent studios in the 1980s. They uh, released the Rambo movies starring Sylvester Stallone. They released uh, the famous Sharon Stone movie, Basic Instinct. And uh, in the 1980s, uh, home video divisions had become a goldmine for the studios. It was a new business. Uh, It was really kind of found uh, money. And that's the way people were uh, consuming movies uh, long before streaming. Uh, People had, uh, you know, uh, uh, had uh, VCRs uh, and and beta uh, machines in their homes and uh, played movies. And so uh, Jose and Kitty Menendez had lived in Princeton, New Jersey for 20 years with their sons, Eric and Lyle, and they picked up the family and moved out to California. At one point, Jose Menendez uh, talked with uh, his wife, Kitty, and suggested that he and Eric uh, come out to California And uh, the Kitty and Lyle stay in uh, Princeton. Lyle was about to start school at Princeton University. And uh, Kitty Menendez was very involved in uh, charitable groups and uh, community activities. But she quickly turned that down, so the entire family moved to uh, Los Angeles. And initially, for a year and a half, they lived in the uh, L.A. suburb of Calabasas which nobody had heard of in 1989 uh, on a right. national international level. But uh, of course we've since,
0: uh, you know, known Calabasas as the home of the Kardashians. Right. Now you talk about Mary Louise and she was involved in some volunteer work, but she was not really uh, pleased with the move from Princeton. She was pretty happy with her friends and her life there. Wasn't she?
1: That's correct. Uh, Kitty Menendez had, uh, you know, lived in that community uh, for 20 years. Uh, she had a lot of friends. She was involved in uh, different activities. Um, Jose, Menendez, uh, Jose Menendez had a sister, Cherry Baralt, and her husband, Carlos Baralt, and they had, uh, the Barraults had four daughters, and they lived down the street from the Menendez's. The two families were very close. And so for Kitty Menendez, the idea of uprooting her life and, and moving to California after 20 years in prison was really something she was, was not, uh, uh, she did not really want to do that. Uh, but at a certain point after some uh, friction between Jose and Kitty, uh, she did agree to uh, move to Los Angeles. As I said, the family lived in Calabasas for about a year and a half. And then, uh, Eric Menendez was involved in a a fight at Calabasas High School. Eric was a star player on the uh, Calabasas High tennis team. And uh, one day, uh, some members of the tennis team became involved uh, in a fight with some gang members. And um, there were some threats being made against the Menendez family. And uh, so that was one of the reasons that uh, Jose and Kitty decided to move to Beverly Hills. And uh, they purchased a mansion on uh, North Elm Drive in the fall of 1988
0: and made that move to uh, Beverly Hills. Now, how old was Eric at that time and where was he in terms of his schooling and where was Lyle? And uh, there's four years, almost four years difference in age. But tell us where they were age wise and uh, education wise at that point, what they were doing.
1: Sure. Well, in the, in the fall of, uh, 1988, Eric Menendez, uh, was, uh, would have been 17 years old. Uh, and, uh, he was, uh, he had been going to, uh, Calabasas high school and, um, Lyle had just started his, uh, fir- first year at, uh, Princeton. And, um, the um, I mentioned the uh, gang fight that uh, Eric was involved in as being one mm-hmm. problem that was going on, uh, you know, within the family, but uh, there, there was another incident, uh, that took place in which Eric was involved in some burglaries in Calabasas, right. Uh, which he committed, uh, with a close friend, and they were, and actually, uh, uh Eric Menendez uh the first burglary he was involved in uh the uh the house uh the where they committed the burglary was the home of the parents of a friend of Eric's uh, and uh, and another uh friend of his who who was involved in the burglary Craig Signorelli and um the parents were out of town they were in Europe on vacation and um Eric's friend, uh, whose parents were out of town, actually gave Eric and Craig the combination to his parents' safe, and they took uh, uh, quite quite a bit of uh, uh, property out of the house, uh, including uh, property worth about a hundred thousand dollars. And um, so, and then uh, they decided to do uh, a second burglary, and uh, Lyle Menendez was very upset when he. Heard about this, and he didn't want. Uh, he, he was also concerned about the relationship between Eric Menendez and his best friend Craig Signorelli. So Lyle actually was involved in a second burglary with Eric, and uh, uh, overall, and again, this was the house of the parents of, of a friend of Eric Menendez, and. Um, Overall, uh, over $100,000 worth of property was taken in these burglaries, and uh, eventually the uh, uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Office became involved, and uh, because uh, you know there had been some talk among the kids at Calabasas High, uh, Eric Menendez was uh, accused of uh, taking part in these burglaries, but they were able to shield uh, Lyle because he uh, was over 18, and so Eric uh, basically Uh, took the fall for both of them and was charged as a uh, juvenile and uh, the uh, most of the property was returned and Jose Menendez wrote a check to cover uh, the rest of the uh, missing property and that was another reason why the family moved from Calabasas to Beverly Hills because this was uh, very very embarrassing for Jose and Kitty Menendez and Jose Menendez actually had uh, some thoughts in his head that he might uh, run for political office in the future. His sister told me that he wanted to retire from the entertainment business uh, in five or six years and run for the U.S. Senate in Florida. So um, Jose, you know, hired hired a high profile lawyer, Gerald Chayloff, and um, the burglary was uh, uh, the, the burglary case was uh, um, took place in uh, juvenile court. And as part of the uh, resolution of the uh, burglary case, uh, uh, Eric Menendez was ordered to be evaluated by a therapist. And Kitty Menendez's therapist uh, recommended a doctor by the name of Jerome Ozeal to do that evaluation uh, with Eric. And so Dr. Ozeal, who later plays a major role in the uh, Menendez uh, murder case, uh, that, that was his initial contact with the Menendez family to prepare this evaluation for uh, juvenile court. And uh, Dr. Oziel uh, saw Eric Menendez uh, alone in sessions, but uh, Jose and Kitty Menendez had Dr. Has Eric Menendez sign a release so that Dr. Oziel could tell them everything that went on in the therapy sessions. And uh, there were also some group sessions with the entire Menendez family. But uh, the, this burglary incident, along with this gang fight that I mentioned, uh, both contributed, motivated the uh, family, motivated Jose Menendez to decide to move the family from Calabasas to Beverly Hills. And so they actually uh, made the move to Beverly Hills uh, around Thanksgiving 1988, about eight months before
0: August 20th, 1989, the night of the murders. What did uh, Jose say to his his boys in his obvious disappointment with them regarding – his will.
1: Well, uh, the the uh, in the in the spring of 1989, several months uh, before the murders, uh, Jose Menendez uh, spoke with Carlos Baralt, his brother-in-law, who the who was the executor of his estate, and he told uh, Baralt that he wanted to remove Eric and Lyle from his will. He was frustrated with them. He was disappointed. Uh, about the situation with the Calabasas burglaries. And, uh, he just, uh, you know, wanted, wanted to make a change in his estate planning. Um, the, uh, Jose also had, uh, discussions with his sister, Marticano, the aunt in uh, West Palm beach, Florida. And he wanted to, um, you know, told her that he was going to be drawing up a, a new will. Uh, but, uh, Jose was a very busy uh, entertainment executive and he never got around to following through uh, on those plans to create a new will. And um, so that, that this was obviously uh, an important issue and important
0: information uh, during this testimony, during the brothers' trials. Let's talk about August 20th, 1989, and you take us there. In 1989, a Sunday night, and but before we get that, uh, there's a phone call to someone named Perry Berman. Again, I'm um, maybe getting ahead of myself here. Right. Tell us who Perry Berman is, and then tell us uh, about the Sunday night, or pardon me, the Sunday in the in the day. What happens at the home? the Menendez home, and then tell us about Terry well, Berman.
1: Sure. On Sunday, August 20th, 1989, it was a beautiful, warm August afternoon. Uh, the Menendez family was uh, uh, spent the day uh, around the house. They lived in an 8,000-square-foot mansion on uh, North Elm Drive, just below uh, Sunset Boulevard in uh, a, a very uh, upscale uh, section of Beverly Hills. And uh, the Menendez mansion had a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool be, behind the house. And it, there was also a tennis court, since both brothers were nationally ranked tennis players and practicing frequently, So most of the day, the family was uh, around the house in the pool. Uh, the brothers were playing tennis. And at one point, uh, uh, the uh, Lyle Menendez had a phone call with Perry Berman, a uh, former tennis coach of the brothers and a friend of uh, both brothers. And they talked about meeting up at a uh, food tasting festival in Santa Monica, uh, about 20 minutes west of uh, Beverly Hills uh, near the beach. And um, so they made tentative plans to meet at this food festival. Um, The, um, brothers said they wanted to order uh, Chinese food but Kitty Menendez was cooking fish uh, she made dinner and then uh, the brothers uh, left the house and uh, went to see uh, the movie Batman at a nearby uh, movie theater and uh, that was the basically the original uh, narrative of uh, you know what the brothers said took place and um, Perry Berman uh, was at the food festival, waiting to meet uh, Eric and Lyle, and they never showed up. And about 11:30 uh, at night, um, Lyle Menendez uh, called Perry Berman and said, uh, "Where where are you? You know, we're here in Santa Monica at the food festival." And Berman said, uh, "Well, hey, it ended about 10 o'clock," uh, and uh, he he said. Uh, you know, I'm just going to bed. Can we talk tomorrow? And Lyle uh, was kind of frantic and he said, no, I need to talk to you right now. He said, I'm really concerned about if I should go back to Princeton and concerned about some issues uh, with his father. And he uh, really pushed and and, uh, pleaded with Berman to uh, uh, meet the brothers uh, right away. And uh, initially Lyle asked uh, Berman to come meet the brothers, uh, at the Menendez mansion. And then, um, Berman said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, I'll meet you at the cheesecake factory restaurant. And so, uh, Berman went over to the cheesecake factory and, uh, the, the restaurant was just closing. The chairs were being put up on the table. And again, this is 1989. So we have no cell phones. And so this restaurant was only about 10 minutes away from the Menendez mansion. So Berman decided to drive over to North Elm Drive and as he pulled up the street he uh, became very alarmed when he saw that the street was filled with police cars with flashing lights and uh, the uh, and and, and what, what, what happened was that uh, Eric Menendez in, in the initial story that uh, Eric and Lyle Menendez told the police they said they had come home and walked in and were shocked to uh, you know, find the
0: bodies of their parents. You talk about that the reason they, what they had mentioned to Perry Berman is that they were going to drop by the house to pick up some uh, Eric's ID, uh, fake ID so that he could drink. And that was the reason they were just going to stop, park the car outside the house, outside the gate, and then go into that house. And then they found this horror scene you talk about the 911 call and then the and their reaction when the police do get there. Um, tell us a little bit about that, but also what the police failed to do in terms of normal procedure testing in a case like this.
1: Well, Eric and Lyle Menendez uh, told the police that they, you know, came back from uh, being out of it at the food festival, and walked into the house and were, you know, horrified and shocked uh, and emotional when they found the dead bodies of their parents. And uh, Lyle Menendez made a call to 911 at 1147 p.m. the night of August 20th, and he was emotional and uh, uh, could barely be understood as he uh, told the uh, 911 operator, somebody killed my parents. And in the background of that dramatic 911 call, uh, you can hear Eric Menendez screaming, uh, extremely emotional. And at one point, Lyle Menendez, uh, you know, turns away from the phone and is yelling at Eric, Eric, get away from them. And uh, uh, Beverly Hills is a community which is uh, not used to uh, having uh, uh, too many murder cases in, in uh, 1989, but, uh, Beverly Hills averaged uh, uh two murders uh, a year and uh it's a small community uh the police responded within a few minutes and um as as they pulled up uh you know they were ver- very cautious as they would be at any crime scene and uh the brothers were still in the house and the uh police uh, called the house and uh, asked the brothers to come outside, and uh, the brothers uh, uh, w- within thirty seconds came running out the front door. Uh, the police went in and began you know searching the house uh, discovered the bodies and the brothers were extremely emotional extremely distraught uh, Eric Menendez was down on the on the grass in front of the house, uh, pounding the ground. Uh, you know, saying who did this. You know, I'm 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 going to kill them. Uh, you know, and and just extremely overwhelmed. Uh, Lyle Menendez was a little calmer, but uh, clearly upset. And uh, the brothers called. The first person the brothers called was their tennis coach, Mark Heffernan, who lived in Santa Monica. He came over to the house. And then the officers uh, told the the brothers that they were going to take them to the. Police station uh, uh, to be interviewed by uh, Sergeant Tom Edmonds, and um, one of the uh, one of the things that happened that night was because of the, the the police felt the the brothers' emotion was genuine, they were so distraught. The police did not perform gunshot residue tests on Eric and Lyle Menendez. Right. If the police had performed that test, a uh, kind of a basic. Uh, You know, procedure, uh, Police 101, uh, if the police had uh, performed that GSR test, uh, the Menendez brothers would have been arrested that night. But uh, because the brothers were so distraught, the police didn't do it. The police believed that they were uh, grieving sons. Uh, They were both interviewed uh, at the police station. And then at one point at about 530 in the morning, uh, the brothers uh, returned to the house. In a taxi, and they had gone uh, out to the uh, uh, home of their tennis coach, Mark Heffern. And about 5:30 in the morning, the brothers returned to the house, and uh, they met uh, Les Les Soler, the lead investigator for the Beverly Hills Police. And they told Soler that uh, they needed to get inside the house uh, because uh, there was some tennis equipment they wanted to pick up and they needed to get inside the, the house, and they also wanted to go inside. Eric Menendez's car was parked on the street uh, right outside, right in front of the house. And so Zoller told them, you know, they couldn't go in the house because it was an active crime scene. He asked them to come back in a few hours. The brothers returned about 8.30 in the morning and uh, briefly went inside the house. But the primary reason they returned was they went into Eric's car and filled an athletic bag with shotgun shells and receipts from the purchase of two shotguns in uh, San Diego uh, several days earlier. And incredibly, in, in another uh, uh, you know mistake that the Beverly Hills police made, they never searched that car. Even though it was sitting right outside uh, of the house, if the police had searched that car, they would have found shotgun shells and receipts for two shotguns. And once again, that's uh, it, it's likely that the brothers might have been arrested that night because of that.
0: Absolutely. You write that what police did find in that home was that somebody had burst into the Menendez family room and began firing 12-gauge Mossberg shotguns. And somebody had put to the barrel of to Jose's head and pulled the trigger. And Kitty had been found on, on the ground, and I guess uh, what they determined was a gun was put near her mouth or near her head. And, and you write that every bone was broken in her face, and so they emptied their, their weapons. But the, the police at that time, like you mentioned, that they could have had some incredible incriminating evidence. Uh, there was a definite lack of evidence otherwise at that crime scene wasn't there
1: that's correct uh, th- this was a horrific crime scene uh, I've, I've seen the uh, crime scene video and some of the crime scene uh, photographs which were uh, uh, played and displayed at the uh, brothers trials and mm-hmm. uh, it, it was just uh, it, it was a, one, of, one of the most uh, terrible crime scenes that the detectives had ever encountered uh, shotguns are you know make uh unbelievably large uh, wounds uh you know there the, there was blood uh uh there was there was brain matter dripping uh, from the ceiling when the police came in uh the uh, uh the, you know, the, the parents were uh, uh literally blown away uh, uh as you mentioned one of the uh, one of the shotgun uh, Blast uh, was a point blank uh, shot to the back of Jose Menendez's head. Um, and um, the police were, you know, had were really had a tough time themselves processing uh, this very bloody uh,
0: crime scene. Now how do police proceed with their investigation? Uh, obviously, they have to go to the family. What did they find out from the family? And just for the sake of our audience, um what does the family believe and who are they supportive of the brothers after these murders of their family?
1: Well, the the uh the family um of course, was, was, was shocked. The brothers t- didn't call the family until uh, about 10 or 11 the next morning. Uh, family members are in shock. They all flew to California. Um, the, uh, all of the initial media speculation was that the MERS were somehow related to the home video business. Jose Menendez had recently, his company Live Entertainment, the home video division of caracol had recently taken over a company that had been uh had some uh connections uh to the mob uh the origins of the home video business were actually in the adult film industry and so mm-hmm. there were many uh companies that uh even though they might release uh you know mainstream studio movies they also were releasing uh softcore porn or hardcore porn and so uh the initial media speculation uh uh, was about uh, that it was something related to uh, Jose's business. And uh, five days after the murders, the Wall Street Journal ran a headline, "Hints of a Mob Rubout." The L.A. Times ran a story in which uh, they had a source uh, in the L.A. County Sheriff's Office that said these murders uh, stink of organized crime. And so that's what the family believed. Uh, there was the brothers were not suspects uh, publicly. Um, and that and the speculation about the media was fixated on, you know, that it was some sort of mob hit for several months. Uh, but in reality, what happened was about 10 days after the murders, the uh, an attorney representing the uh, uh, mother of a uh, young girl that the brothers went to school with in Calabasas called the Beverly Hills police and suggested that the police should take a look at Eric and Lyle Menendez.
0: Exactly. You write about uh, what Eric and Lyle in their questioning from police had said about a potential motive and also about the character, <clears throat> the characterization of their father as uh, beyond a tough guy to negotiate with and, and uh, some of his business practices were considered harsh. What exactly did they tell uh, police which lent some credibility to the idea that this would have been uh, someone that was targeting the father.
1: Well, Lyle Menendez uh, spoke to the police about uh, that his father, uh, he actually, uh, the the quote he used was his father had some shady people that he was uh, working with and in contact with in his business. And so Lyle Menendez actually made the suggestion uh, uh, that the, that these killings uh, could be related to his father's business. He uh, mentioned to the police that uh, the family was getting phone calls at uh, all hours of the day and night. Uh, that sometimes shady people would show up at the house. So Lyle was clearly trying to, uh, you know, give that impression to the police that uh, that was the direction they should look at. Uh, Eric Menendez was really emotionally uh, distraught and um, could could really. You know, barely complete sentences in in the initial interview, the night of the murders. And then there were uh, uh, the police uh, were over in uh, New Jersey and uh, to interview uh, um, Jose's uh, sister, Terry Baralt and her husband, Carlos. And uh, just by accident, they, this is about three weeks uh, after the murders. Just by accident, Eric and Lyle Menendez walked into the house while they're interviewing the Beralts. and so the police did a second interview uh, with the Menendez brothers in uh, New Jersey, uh, in which you know it was a, obviously a calmer setting three weeks uh, after after the deaths of Jose and Kitty. And uh, again, the you know the, the brothers said they they really had no idea. Uh, You know, why why these uh, murders uh, took place Uh, But uh, they did um, Eric did mention, uh, you know, that he had been involved in this gang fight And during that second interview in New Jersey Eric mentioned that uh, he had a therapist named Dr. Jerome Ozeel And that police should talk to him uh, and the police said, well, we sure, we'd like to talk to Dr. Oziel, but we would need you to give us a uh, waiver because normally there's a privilege between a therapist and uh, a patient. And uh, Eric Menendez uh, n- never uh,
0: ended up doing that. You talk about the uh, what Lyle does, I believe, in terms of contacts, a computer uh, maintenance uh, business after he learns that uh, his relative, Carlos Baralt, was going to search a computer looking for files related to the will because he was privy to what uh, Jose, uh, his idea of changing that will. When I I believe Lyle finds out about this, tell us what he does in terms of hiring this company. Sure. Several days
1: uh, after uh, the deaths of Jose and Kitty, uh, the family was out in California, and they were uh, frantically uh, looking all over the house trying to find uh, a copy of Jose and Kitty's will. Um, the um, you know I, I mentioned the, earlier that Carlos uh, Baralt had had a conversation with Jose in the spring of '89, a few months before the murders, about removing the brothers from the will. And so, uh, but nobody nobody knew if you know a new will had actually been created. And, uh, at one point the, uh, yeah, the, uh, Jose and Kitty had a, uh, uh, one, one of the old original uh, Apple computers, uh, in their bedroom. Uh, and so, um, I'm sorry, it was an IBM computer. Uh, and so they wanted to, they, they took a look at the computer them, themselves and couldn't figure out, uh, you know, how to get into the files. And so, um, they made arrangements for, uh, somebody to come and, and try to look look at the computer. Lyle Menendez was aware of this, and before uh, uh, the Baraltz uh, computer uh, expert came over, Lyle Menendez opened the Yellow Pages, uh, called a uh, company, and had a man uh, called a local uh, L.A. company and had a man come over. He told uh, that man that he was going to sell the computer and he wanted to erase the hard drive. And the brothers were um, particularly interested there were four files, uh, titled, uh, Eric Lyle, Will and Menendez. And the brothers were extremely interested in those four files, but it turned out there were only about 50 or a hundred characters in each of those files. So there was no new Will on the computer, uh, and even if there had been a will or a draft of a will on the computer, I'm not sure that would have been a legal document since it would have just been uh, a file on a computer and not a signed, uh, notarized document. So right. uh, Lyle told the computer expert uh, that, he, that he called, that he hired, that he was selling a computer to please uh, erase everything off the uh, hard drive. So um, a couple of days later, uh, another computer expert shows up at the house, uh, the uh, man who had been hired by the family, and he goes to uh, take a look at the uh, computer and the entire hard drive is erased. And so uh, later that obviously became a significant piece of uh, evidence for the
0: prosecution. Also, you talk about right after this in terms of Suspicious behavior that they had a, they had gotten a two hundred fifty thousand dollar insurance policy claim uh, given to them almost immediately. Um, what was the will estimated at that was originally well, from anything that anybody knew all going to go to these brothers?
1: Right. Well, well, just to just to finish the thought on uh, what happened with the will at at one point. Uh, so, uh, so not, nothing is on the computer when the, uh, uh Carlos Perrault, the executive, executive of the state as, as a computer expert at the house. And he finds that the hard drive is wiped clean. Uh, the family continued, uh, searching in the house. And at one point they found a, uh, a will, a signed will in a drawer in the parents' bedroom. And it was, uh, uh, that will was created in 1980 and it left everything uh, to the brothers. Um, the, the family, um, really had no suspicion and no thought that the brothers could have been involved in any way in their parents' murder. And, um, the family in the media, the media kept repeating that the family estate was worth uh, fourteen million dollars. Uh, the reality is that the family estate was worth somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight million dollars. That's still a lot of money, but they had a house in Calabasas that they were doing a reconstruction on, and they also owned a house in, in Beverly Hills. So really, Jose Menendez was kind of heavily uh, leveraged, uh, and so five weeks after the murders. Uh, the brothers uh, got together with their aunt who was uh, back in California from Florida. And she told them uh, that they were the beneficiaries of a life insurance policy, which the brothers did not know anything about until that day, five weeks after the murders. And uh, so five weeks after the murders, each brother uh, received a check for a quarter million dollars in cash. And, um, The brothers actually never got their hands on any of the money from the uh, Menendez estate. Uh, There was a loan made from the estate to Lyle when he uh, purchased a chicken wing restaurant in Princeton. But uh, the uh, brothers each each get a quarter million dollars in their bank accounts. And um, they began to go out uh, spending a lot of money. Uh, Lyle bought a new Porsche. Eric bought a Jeep. Uh, Lyle bought, uh, a Rolex for himself and a Rolex for Eric and they were traveling all over the country, uh, on MGM air, which was a, uh, upscale, uh, uh, small airline uh, back then. And, um, the, one, one of the things that, uh, people don't always know about the Menendez family is because the brothers were nationally ranked tennis players, Jose Menendez had given each brother an American Express card, and he allowed them to charge uh, up to $10,000 a month. So this was an upper-class family. They were used to spending a lot of money. The brothers were used to spending a lot of money. So the fact that they continued spending money after their parents' deaths uh, was actually not uh, something that uh, seemed unusual uh, to the family members. Uh, And, and, you know, one of the – the media, uh, after the brothers were arrested, uh, was entirely focused on uh, Eric and Lyle Menendez went on this crazy spending spree after they killed their parents. And the reality was that they had spent a lot of money before their parents died. Uh, So – and one of the things that, that, you know, I, I like to bring up to people is if you were 18 years old, and somebody handed you a quarter million dollars in cash, to me the surprise would be if you didn't go out and buy a new car and buy some fancy clothes and, 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 and buy a watch. So the spending spree uh, evidence was, was never uh, that critical to me in my evaluation of the case. And uh, one of the most interesting factoids about the case is that in August of 92, uh, one year before the brothers went on trial, Prosecutors presented evidence to an L.A. County grand jury, evidence of murder for financial gain, evidence of murder for financial gain. The grand jury did not indict the Menendez brothers on those charges of murder for financial gain. But in spite of the fact that the grand jury did not return that indictment, the prosecution grabbed onto that as their theme uh, because the general public uh, hates the rich and the and, uh, the prosecution decided, and and the and the media had picked up on that theme. One of the interesting uh, elements of the whole Menendez story is how the media, but uh, you know, back in uh, you know the early 1990s, uh, the media had such an impact on high-profile trials. Again, this is years before the internet, uh, years, many years before social media, and so back then, when the mainstream media set an agenda in your case. Uh, that was basically it. You could stick a fork in it. You were done. You were cooked. And that's what happened with Eric and Lyle Menendez. They became the greedy rich kids from the first uh, week they were arrested, and the media sucked with that.
0: Let's use this as an opportunity, Robert, to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, FabFitFun. The FabFitFun Fall Box is on sale now. They do the shopping for you. Each box can be customized to your very specific interests, and the fall box is a fantastic way to spoil yourself and others with the coolest curated box of unique products. These boxes sell out fast, so sign up for yours today. My wife Lisa was very excited to, to get her very first Fun box. She was thrilled with all the great products she received. In the fall box she just received, she especially liked the gourmet wood and ceramic cheese board gift set by twine and a really nice two in one salt and pepper grinder from a pair. And daily hair repair from Avita. Lisa is always anxious to get her next FabFitFun box. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box with full size beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products. It retails for $49.99 but always has a value over two hundred dollars. Use coupon code Murder for $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. Use coupon code MURDER for $10 off your first f- box at www.fabfitfun.com. Now, Robert, we have to talk about how they eventually, soon, or not so soon, the two are arrested and Why? And then take us to the trial because we, as we talked about in the introduction, there's two trials and there's so much and it's such a complicated case. Let's get to how they were arrested before we start talking about the first trial. Sure. Uh,
1: so after uh, the uh, after after the brothers uh, received uh, this insurance payout. Uh, they were spending a lot of money. Uh, the Beverly Hills police actually had received this tip about ten days after the murders that uh, they should look, at, take a close look at the brothers. And I was—I had just spent two months of reporting about the home video business in in my uh, working on a story for the Miami Herald, and so I reached out to all of those contacts that that I was in, in touch with. And the basic consensus was that these killings had nothing to do with the home video business. And um, even though the media continued that speculation, uh, I, I basically hit, hit a wall, hit a dead end. And um, the, uh, the reality was that the police were focused on the brothers. And I came out to California two months uh, after the murders, five months before the brothers were arrested in my reporting for a, that biography about Jose Menendez. And I spent uh, a couple of days with Eric and Lyle and um, they were not suspects publicly. I had no reason to be suspicious of them. And we did uh, over the course of two days, uh, the brothers told me uh, loving stories of how close knit the family was Uh They um, told me how much they missed the parents. They were emotionally appropriate. And as I said, I had no reason to be suspicious of them. Um, My, 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 uh, the two days I spent with the brothers uh, were the end of October, 1989. And the second day I was actually with Eric Menendez alone. Lyle Menendez did not want me to use a tape recorder. I did uh, audio tape the interview with Eric and, um, after we finished the interview, Eric actually, uh, you know, invited me to come out and see the family's dream house in Calabasas. So, uh, he volunteered to spend more time with me, uh, nine days after I did that interview with Eric Menendez, he contacted uh, his therapist, Dr. Jerome Ozil, and said that he needed to come see him. And, uh, on that day, Halloween, 1989, Eric Menendez confessed to Dr. Oziel that he and Lyle were responsible for their parents' deaths. Uh, Dr. Oziel was shocked. Uh, you know, he uh, had Eric call uh, Lyle, who was passing out Halloween candy with his girlfriend at the Menendez mansion. And um, Lyle Menendez rushed over to Dr. Oziel's office in Beverly Hills, and uh, was extremely upset with Eric, was obviously concerned that Dr. Oziel was going to go to the Beverly Hills police. And uh, th- th- there was a very emotional, dramatic uh, session with Dr. Oziel and the, the two brothers. And at the end of that session, they, Dr. Oziel uh, walked uh, the brothers to the elevator. And Lyle Menendez uh, shook the therapist's hand and said, good luck, good luck, Dr. Oziel, as in he was going to need some good luck. And Dr. O'Zeele, uh interpreted that moment as uh, that Lyle Menendez was threatening to him. Uh, normally, you have a privilege with a therapist. The, the therapist cannot reveal what goes on in a therapy session. There's an exception to that privilege under Cal- California law called the Tarasoff rule. Uh, if you threaten your therapist or if you threaten, you know, if you tell a therapist, I'm going to go kill my girlfriend tomorrow, then he is allowed under California law to break the uh, privilege and tell, uh, you know, people around him, his family, uh, you know, that there's a potential danger and also to, uh, possibly go to the police. But, uh, Dr. Ozeal did not go to the police, but he had a, uh, uh a girlfriend by the name of Judalon Smith. Uh, Dr. Ozeal was married with two young daughters. He had a girlfriend named Judalon Smith and, um, there's, there's a, there's a little confusion over what exactly happened the night that Eric Menendez confessed to Dr. Oziel. Uh, Judelon Smith, uh, originally told police and in some media interviews that she had been in the waiting room of Dr. Oziel's office on the night the brothers confessed and that she had overheard the confession, uh, as she was sitting down the hall. Uh, I don't believe that ever happened. Uh, the, uh, Dr. Ozil let me into the office and, and let me see that the waiting room was, was quite a bit, uh, quite a long distance, uh, from the uh, therapy room. And when the door to the therapy room was closed and the door of the waiting room was, was closed, there's no way that she would have heard anything. Uh, I believe what happened is that Dr. Ozil gossiped with his girlfriend and, uh, sure. then that created a whole new set of problems because, uh, Dr. Ozeal was interested in kind of maintaining control over the Menendez brothers. He talked to them about possibly becoming their financial advisor. And at one point, so they started having therapy sessions after the night of the confession. And uh, Dr. Ozeal at one point, uh, a few weeks in, said, look, I'm going to schedule two therapy sessions a day, one for each of you, uh, five days a week. And he said, told them, uh, I don't care if you ever show up. Uh, and the brothers, uh, you know, really obviously interpreted that into that he was blackmailing them. And that was an accusation that the defense made during the first trial. Uh, The family members uh, kept getting these large bills from Dr. Ozeal. Their aunt, March Cano uh, received one bill for $10,000 and called Eric and said, what's going on? And Eric said, Oh, aunt Marta, this is really important to therapy. So please just keep uh, paying these bills. And uh, in the background of all of this, uh, the the relationship between Dr. Ozeal and Judelon Smith was beginning to go sour. And uh, he had, as I mentioned, he had already revealed that the brothers had confessed to him. And so uh, Smith started making threats saying that she was going to go to the Beverly Hills Police and tell them, the brothers had confessed, and uh, at one point, Dr. Oziel recorded a hour-long uh, therapy session. You can put quotes around that. Uh, and uh, he they had these tapes in a safe deposit box, and uh, as a way to ensure his safety. So Judon Smith was aware that there were uh, there was a tape of the brothers, and also audio notes uh, from some of these therapy sessions. And so, uh, in a curious twist of the uh, the Ozeal Smith story, uh, Dr. Ozeal and his wife moved Smith into their house with their daughters in an effort to keep the lid on her, to keep her from going to the police. And at some point, uh, uh, several months later, the, that whole situation blows up. Uh, Dr. Ozeal and his wife, who is also a therapist, come home one night. All the furniture in their house has been rearranged. And Dr. Oziel walks down the hallway, and he hears Smith talking to his eight-year-old daughter and telling her, "I'm going to be your new mommy, and your mommy's going to be leaving." The Oziels kick Smith out of the house, and the next day she goes to the Beverly Hills police. And a day later, uh, Lyle Menendez. The, a day later, the Beverly Hills police show up at Dr. Oziel's house for the search warrant. Uh, they seize the audio tapes from his safe deposit box, and uh, a few hours later, Lyle Menendez is, is arrested.
0: Now, right away in this, as you as as we've just spoken, these tapes are crucial in terms of recorded evidence, incriminating, damning evidence. But there's the idea of admissibility and this idea of uh, patient uh, doctor confidentiality. When they get to trial and they're fighting about this, because this is the first fight, a serious fight uh, that can have consequences for both prosecution and defense. What happens in terms of that admissibility and those tapes?
1: The Menendez case did not go to trial for three years as both sides, the prosecution and the defense, fought uh, a very uh, bitter battle. Over the admission of those tapes, as I mentioned, uh, normally under California law, you know, there's a privilege with a, with a therapist, and I also mentioned the exception to that privilege. If you threaten your therapist, as Dr. O'Zeal claimed, uh, had taken place. I don't believe that he. I don't believe that Lyle Menendez did threaten him. Uh, I believe he was simply trying to save his career. But uh, the issue of the admission of those tapes went all the way to the California Supreme Court, and. Uh, uh, shortly before the trial, the California Supreme Court ruled that the tapes could uh, be admitted as evidence. Uh, the um, interesting thing about the uh, the trial or the the, the case uh, was that the Beverly Hills police did not really have a strong case without those tapes. Uh, but once uh, the tapes were admitted as evidence, the defense had to completely uh, shift. And uh, the case went from being a if if those tapes had not been admitted, even if it would have been like the emperor's new clothes. Everybody knew there were tapes, uh, and what was on those tapes. But if the tapes had not been admitted as evidence into court, the defense would have been who done it. You know, you say Eric and killed their parents. Let's see your evidence. And the prosecution did not have a strong case, but the tapes were admitted. And so the defense shifted and um, about two weeks before the trial, Leslie Abramson, the lead defense attorney with the blonde curly hair did an interview with the LA times in which she revealed that the defense uh, was the brothers were going to tell a story of a lifetime of abuse and molestation and a series of confrontations in the days before the murders that led up to the uh, actual killing of Jose and Kitty Menendez. And, the general public uh, was a little confused. Uh, most of the public believed, because of the media coverage, that Eric and Lyle Menendez's defense was, uh, we were abused, we were molested, and so therefore we get a pass. So that, That's why we killed our parents. The actual legal defense was, we were in fear for our lives. There were these serious... Of-
0: and that's what you would call the involuntary manslaughter, where it's um, the have a fear of imminent danger however even though that's unreasonable in someone else's mind Robert has just left us in mid question and i was just talking to him about the distinction in in the in the first trial in terms of admissibility of Uh, Two of the tapes, or four tapes, and two of those tapes were deemed admissible because they did speak to uh, the threats that were, the alleged threats that were made by the uh, psychiatrist, by Ozeal. The distinction in court was that they would be able to, a jury would be able to hear that information. And here we are with Robert again to explain I, uh, we we got cut off. You were talking about, we, we were talking about that admissibility and that distinction. And uh, tell us more about that distinction and what was contained in those tapes and that had to, for the prosecution, had to readjust their uh, strategy.
1: Well, l- let me just give you a quick background of how that tape was created. Uh, So Eric Menendez confessed to Dr. Oziel on uh, October 31st, 1989, and uh, about six weeks later, uh, Dr. Oziel suggested that uh, the brothers record uh, an audio tape with him so that in the event that they were arrested at some point, uh, that they would be able to show that they had remorse for the killing of their parents. And uh, Gerald Chaliff, who was one of the criminal defense attorneys involved in the case early on, and he was Lyle's original uh, defense attorney when he was arrested. Uh, Gerald Chaliff actually had a meeting with Dr. Oziel in his office for about an hour before they brought the brothers in. And then uh, Chaliff uh, left, left the room and Oziel recorded this hour long uh, uh, so-called therapy session with the brothers. And um, in the, this, uh, 60-minute tape, which was a key, obviously a key piece of evidence uh, in the uh, uh, in the trials. Uh, the brothers are heard uh, saying that they, uh, you know, were thinking about uh, whether to actually commit the murders for several days and, um, you know, talked in, in – it's just kind of a strange tape. Dr. Rozeal is doing most of the talking. He's really kind of leading the brothers – um there's some harsh moments uh there was one moment where lyle says uh, you know I, I miss my mother but i also miss my dog if i can make such a gross analogy uh the 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 tape was really pretty damaging uh, for the for the brother's defense but uh in in an interesting twist uh, uh there's so many interesting twists in this story in an interesting twist uh after uh, the supreme court you know, ruled that uh, the uh, tape could be admitted as evidence. Uh, obviously, the prosecution was going to uh, uh, admit or, or present, introduce the case, the tape during their case. And um, the defense waited until the, both of the brothers testified. And then the defense actually introduced the tape. And the reason they did that was because they knew it was going to be introduced one way or the other. So by the defense introducing it, then, after the tape was played, they immediately put three or four uh, therapy experts, defense therapy experts on the stand to put their spin on this whole tape, and so that really kind of softened the blow of uh, some of the negative things uh, you know that were that the jury was hearing
0: in that uh, one hour tape. What I mentioned with just the the short interruption was the imminent danger. So what is exactly their defense in terms of they weren't abused. It wasn't revenge for the abuse. So what was their defense in that they presented in court in terms of this imminent danger that they thought they perceived as imminent?
1: Well, the the defense is called uh, an imperfect self-defense and, uh, the abuse and, and molestation are a factor in, uh, they are, are an element in, in, in that uh, type of defense. Uh, it, this defense was, was really kind of um, unusual uh, in 1993. You have to remember uh, many years ago. Um, basically the, the uh, in the late uh, 1980s, um, uh, the women were starting to use a uh, battered women's defense uh, in cases where uh, abused women had uh, killed their you know their husband or, or boyfriend and so the menendez was defense was kind of unique in that basically they were uh, creating a new uh, you know kind of a tangent of that defense and that was uh, they were uh, uh, creating a battered child defense uh, it was important, an important element for the defense attorneys to present the entire family history of Jose and Kitty Menendez, including their own uh, childhoods. And uh, the uh, Judge Stanley Weisberg, uh, who had also been the judge on the uh, the famous Rodney King trial that uh, led to the L.A. riots, Judge Weisberg uh, gave the defense quite a bit of leeway in the first trial and allowed them to uh, present up 65 teachers, coaches, family, friends, uh, relatives, and so the jury heard quite a bit of evidence uh, about the background of Eric and Lyle Menendez, uh, and and um, the the it's 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 difficult for the public. Because the public, you know, when you're only here, you know, seeing a daily newspaper story or you're seeing a minute 30 uh, TV story on the 11 o'clock news, it's really difficult to get into these complex issues. But the fact that half of the Menendez jurors voted for manslaughter in the first trial and half of the jurors voted for murder tells you that that evidence uh, of the family history had a significant impact. in the decision making of the uh, jury there were two juries one for each
0: brother, in the first trial what happens in the first trial despite that family background being exposed and despite the performances of the brothers at the trial as well they they were decent uh, performances if we can judge it by that uh, what happened with the jury what was the decision
1: well the the juries were um, split along gender lines for the most part Uh, basically almost all the women voted for manslaughter and almost all the men voted for uh, murder. Uh, The deliberations uh, for Lyle Menendez went on for, I I think, almost three, three weeks. Uh, And uh, neither jury uh, could, could reach a decision. And so the trial ended uh, with a mistrial, two hung juries. And I interviewed all the jurors after the first trial and, um, all of the men told me some variation of a father would never do that to his sons. And I think 26 years later, I, you know, I think society has evolved in, in that people are willing to accept the possibility that these that this type of abuse uh, does take place. But for the women who voted for manslaughter, they were quite – uh, you know, comfortable with their decision based on those 65 defense witnesses that they saw, and the trial was broadcast live, gavel to gavel, on Court TV, a new cable channel in right. the early 90s, and people that were watching that trial every day like a novella. Uh, you know, they, I, I think they, people that, you know, watched every moment of the trial, I, th- I, th- I think they had an understanding of,
0: uh, you know, where the truth was in this case hmm Now, you talk about the first trial, when they finally get to trial after the two mistrials, they finally get to trial, and there's the involuntary manslaughter decision. So, obviously, that's what the jury uh, believed, and that was the decision. What happens after that? Why another trial?
1: Well... Uh, So the first trial ended in a mistrial because neither jury, there was one for each brother, neither jury could uh, decide on a verdict. Uh, There was bitter fighting uh, in in each jury room, and um, a mistrial was declared. And within an hour after that uh, mistrial was declared, uh, L.A. District Attorney Gil Garcetti uh, had a, a news conference and announced immediately that he was going to retry the Menendez brothers because he said this is a case of first-degree murder, and, you know, we're not we're not going to settle this case. We're going back to trial again. And if this had not been a high-profile media case, there would never have been a second trial. There would have been a plea agreement, and uh, that would have been it. But the L.A. County the, – the, there are politics involved in this story. Also, the L.A. County District Attorney's Office was on a terrible losing streak. They had lost uh, a case called the McMartin molestation trial. They had lost the Rodney King trial, and they lost the O.J. trial. So they really needed a win. And um, the uh, second Menendez trial, uh, unfortunately for the brothers, had the, the brothers had the misfortune of their second trial started the day after the O.J. Simpson verdict in October 1995. So um, the first thing the judge did was he kicked out the TV camera because he knew that would cut down on the media coverage. And uh, then the judge proceeded to basically reverse most of his evidence rulings from the first trial. And uh, the defense had the heart of its case from the first trial cut out. Uh, the defense, the judge did, was determined not to allow uh, most of the witnesses the defense had put on its first trial, uh, And uh, the therapy experts and the witnesses that did testify, the judge severely limited their testimony. So in the second trial, there was only one jury, and the uh, jurors heard a completely different set of evidence than the first trial jurors. Uh, The second trial was really much more like a traditional murder trial with forensic people, blood spatter experts. Uh, The uh, prosecution brought in a, a company to do a reconstruction of the crime scene that went on for days and days. And this company that uh, was called failure analysis. Uh, they had never done a reconstruction of a crime scene before. They had no background in that. Uh, There was the the head of the company, Roger McCarthy, was a key prosecution witness in the second trial. Uh, Failure analysis was known for recreating the uh, Space Challenger uh, shuttle uh, disaster and uh, doing a recreation of what happened at the Exxon Valdez oil spill, but they'd never been involved in a murder case before. And so um, the second trial was very different. Uh, It wasn't on TV much less media coverage and uh the defense basically was limited at every in in every direction that they tried to go they they weren't allowed to put on the heart of their case that had been the defense in the first trial and then as the as the case was coming to a close uh judge stanley weisberg put the final nail in the brothers coffin when he ruled uh that the jury could not consider manslaughter charges uh for them and he was not going to allow the defense attorneys to argue for an imperfect self defense uh, manslaughter verdict and uh, basically as as the second trial was ending uh the jury was uh restricted to either a, a second degree murder or a first degree murder conviction in March 1996 uh the single jury uh returned a first degree murder conviction uh the first uh, the jury returned a first degree murder conviction for Eric and Lyle Menendez and then uh, that meant that there would be a penalty phase to determine the jury had two choices based on the uh, judge's instructions and those choices were the death penalty or life without parole and
0: then a uh, penalty phase was held for several weeks right and those those things that happened, those, uh, that information was brought in the first trials, uh, was now in the mitigating stage or in the, in the penalty phase, wasn't it? Some of those things were brought up. Uh, during,
1: during the penalty phase, the judge did allow the defense to put on all of those witnesses that had been the heart of their case in the first trial. And, um, it was very emotional testimony, very dramatic testimony, and, um uh, the uh, jurors uh, voted for uh, life without parole. Um, and after the uh, uh, second trial, uh, after the penalty phase uh, verdict, uh, some of the jurors were involved in a, in a news conference in the courtroom, and uh, several jurors said that uh, they thought the death, or they thought life without parole was a harsher sentence than the death penalty. And uh, several months after that, I interviewed uh, many of the jurors, and several of them told me that if they had heard that family history in the guilt phase of the case, they would not have voted for murder. And so there have been accusations made that uh, you know that there was some sort of fix uh, going on with the judge and, and the way everything rolled out. And the brothers uh, went through all their appeals. Their final appeal was at the Ninth Circuit. Uh, court in California, and one of the justices, Alex Kaczynski, said during that appeal hearing that he believed there had been collusion between uh, Judge Weisberg and the DA's office, and uh, yet uh, Justice Kaczynski still voted down the appeal.
0: You, We talked about in the introduction about some information that came to you that you believe could have a bearing on a possible because of new evidence, because of a potential new trial for these brothers. Talk about, uh, uh, Marta Sano's son, Andy, or it's, uh, Lyle's cousin. So tell us about Martin, uh, pardon me, Andy Sano Martin. and this letter that you discover and how you discover this.
1: Well, Marta Cano, uh, was, you know, my original, uh, source, my original entry into the Menendez family. And we had been, uh, very close, uh, you know, over the 30 years that uh, we've been talking. And uh, and was uh, is the sister of Jose Menendez. Joan Vandermolen is the sister of Kitty Menendez. And I have been talking since uh, 1989 to Marta. In 1990, I met Joan. And um, I believe that the Menendez brothers are telling the truth about uh, the abuse and the molestation that Took place in the family, and I believe them not just based on their testimony, which is very compelling, and the hundreds of hours of uh, you know interviews and phone calls we've had over the years. But I have had so much contact with the, the brothers, two aunts, Marta and Joan, uh, and I have learned so much about the what was going on inside this family that uh, uh, this is not a story about two greedy rich kids. The real story of the Menendez murders is a case of involving a family where there was intergenerational sexual abuse and, um, Jose Menendez, uh, was molested, uh, uh, by his mother, according to his sister, uh, Marta Cano and, uh, Kitty Menendez was molested by an uh, older member of the family, according to her sister, uh, Joan Vandermolen. And, and so, um, One of the key witnesses uh, for the defense was Marta Cano's son, Andy Cano. And Andy testified in uh, both trials, and he told the story of when uh, he was 10 years old and Eric was 12. And uh, one day they were out playing in a field, and Eric uh, Menendez asked Andy if his father, uh, you know, ever uh, touched his uh, genitals or massaged his genitals. And, uh, you know, Andy was 10 years old. He was kind of surprised and he said, no. And, and Eric talked about that something was going on with his father, but he made Eric swear with a pinky promise that he would never tell anybody. And he immediately wanted to go tell his mother. Eric said, no, my father will kill me if you uh, tell anybody. And so, uh, that was key testimony, uh, in both trials. And, um, then, as I was working on my book, I was close to the uh, deadline of, of my book in uh, March of 2018, and uh, Marcia Cano uh, had invited me uh, over to her home in West Palm Beach, and I we were going through. She thought that there might have been some letters between uh, Eric and uh, Andy Cano, uh, and so we were going through, uh, and Andy tragically died in uh, 2003. He was very traumatized by this case um, and he took an accidental overdose of uh, sleeping pills. Uh, and so Martha Cano had boxes of Andy's uh, possessions and papers in her attic. And we pulled some of those boxes down and started going through the boxes. And within an hour, uh, I found a letter that Eric Menendez had written to Andy Cano in December of 1988. And in that letter, uh, Eric Menendez uh, uh, talks about uh, it's clear from the letter that Eric Menendez was um, having ongoing communication uh, with his cousin Andy about the molestation. And I'll read you one quick paragraph, a couple sentences from the letter uh, in which Eric wrote to his cousin. I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know Dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone. So this was quite a, when I, when I read this uh, letter out loud to Marticano, she became emotional and we were both extremely su- surprised because I knew all the evidence from uh, both trials and over the course of the investigation. And, uh, I contacted the lawyers and, uh, the brothers and, uh, you know, found out that this letter had never been uh, introduced at either of the trials or was never uh, brought up in any evidence hearing. And, um, there is no uh the letter was just uh, uh, a loose couple pages uh, you know in a box with many other papers uh there's no post there's no envelope with a postmark uh but uh the letter is self authenticated by um references that eric is making mm-hmm. in it in, uh, one of them is he's talking about a christmas family that the fam uh christmas party that the family had just held at the mansion with all the employees at live entertainment. And I knew about that party. I knew when it took place. And he also talked about uh, in the letter that uh, the family had just hired Mark Heffernan as their new tennis coach. And that took place in uh, November of 1988. And the brother's appeal attorney uh, is having uh, forensic testing done, and it can be determined by – it's a handwritten letter. It can be determined uh, uh, approximately the uh, date that letter was written, and the uh, appeal attorney is is confident that uh, it really was written in uh, December of 1988. The murders were August of 89. So in order – the brothers have exhausted all their original appeals. In order to open a new appeal in California, you have to have uh, new evidence. And so that letter is one piece of potential new evidence that could lead to the filing of a new appeal. I hope there will be the filing of a new appeal. And there is some other evidence uh, that I have uh, discovered uh, since my book was published. And um,
0: so basically I just want to say stay tuned because this story isn't over yet. Wow. That's incredible. Well, we haven't told about our audience and it's, chronicled in your book in incredible detail and is very very vivid is the betrayal that the 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 image that the, the family presented was much much different and you say this generational sexual abuse but this father was a, an extraordinarily when we talk about controlling figure this was an extraordinary controlling behavior in terms of telling the mother and the father tell them they shouldn't have a, any friends because that would they would lose their competitiveness, competitiveness um, the, the humiliation and degradation regardless of the success that they had in tennis, the monitoring. And right at the end where Eric was supposed to go to UCLA to go to school, he was also told by his father, no, you're going to stay home three or four days so we can monitor your work. And these are grown adults that they were doing this. And what lent credibility to what you were saying is that their defense was, their claim was, by Abramson, was that they were afraid. That night, they were afraid that they were going to be killed. There was a conversation that, that was, was said by their father that indicated to them, they said, that no matter that their choices had been made and they believed their father was a very dangerous person that would put into motion this threat wasn't that true
1: yes uh the the um the, the, a lot of people had a uh, you, you know were confused uh you know you know about as the details were coming out uh, about the background of the family because jose and kitty menendez uh, were very controlling of the brothers' lives. Uh, one of the things they used to do was they used to do their homework. It didn't take teachers long to figure out that the homework was always perfect and then the brothers would fail uh, when they took a test uh, in the classroom. Uh, the parents used to tell the brothers you know, who they could date, who they could be friends with. So they controlled every aspect of their uh, son's lives. Um, so this was a family in which the, Jose and Kitty were very careful to maintain the facade of the perfect family. You know, on the outside, this family looked perfect. Uh, they lived in a mansion in Beverly Hills. father was an entertainment executive making millions of dollars a year. Uh, the mother, former beauty queen, uh, you know, happy housewife, and the sons were internationally ranked tennis players. So on the outside, this family looked perfect, but it was all a facade. Uh, the reality was that the Menendez family was spinning out of control. A pair of dysfunctional parents had raised a couple of dysfunctional kids, and everything ended in this terrible
0: tragedy. Absolutely. I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about the Menendez murders. Uh... The shocking untold story of the Menendez family and the killings that stunned the nation. For people that might want to take a look at this, do you have a Facebook page or a website that they might take a look at more information about this book?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Dan. And I do You're have a website. Welcome. I do have a website, MenendezMurders.com. Uh, which has background about the case and uh, background uh, about my book. And I also want to mention uh, that in the fall of 2017, uh, NBC uh, uh, produced an eight-hour limited series called uh, Law and Order True Crime, The Menendez Murders. And I was hired by Dick Wolf, the legendary Law and Order producer, and worked with that series as a consultant. And um, the series stars E. Falco, uh, and it is streaming on all major platforms. And if you're interested in the case, it's a very uh, good binge uh, a series to binge. Uh,
0: Absolutely. So please check that out, as, as well as my website, MenendezMurders.com. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Robert. We could go on and talk about this for hours and hours because it's such an incredible and fascinating case that touched everybody throughout the world. It's fantastic to be able to get you to be able to discuss this just for a short while. I want to thank you very much, Robert Rand, for coming on and talking about the Menendez murders. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. You have a great evening. Good night. You too.